You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke 18. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 30 in Luke 18. Uh, my name is Rob. If we've not met, I'm one of the pastors of the church. And the title of today's message is uh, Reach and Equip the Next Generation. That's our title because last week uh, Craig shared a burden that the pastors have had, that we've had for a couple of years, uh, to take a a year and make the ministry theme or the ministry focus for the entire year the next generation. We just have concluded one focus on discovering our place in God's mission and benefited from that and all the ministries benefited from a really clear focus on that. And this year we really feel like the Lord is calling us to a new focus on reaching and equipping the next generation. I'm going to take a little bit of a longer introduction this morning to explain why that is. A few years ago, an organization called Pine Tops Foundation, a non-denominational group that works with a lot of evangelical churches, released a well-researched report. And it's lengthy. You can get it online for free. Uh, and they conclude in this lengthy report uh, this. They say the bottom line is the next 30 years will represent the largest missions opportunity in the history of America. It's the largest and fastest numerical shift in religious affiliation in the history of this country. Even in the most optimistic scenarios, Christian affiliation in the U.S. shrinks dramatically. And in our base case, over one million youth, at least nominally in the church today, will choose to leave each year for the next three decades. 35 million youth raised in families that call themselves Christians will say they are not by 2050. The good news, if we can return the church's retention and evangelism back to Gen X rates, we will see 16 million more youth begin or continue a life with Jesus. What they say in this report, they go on to say, is if we return retention and discipleship and evangelism just to what was going on 20 years ago, more people will be saved in the United States than during both Great Awakenings, the African-American church growth after the Civil War, the revivals in the U.S., and every Billy Graham conversion combined. They say the numbers are just that big. That's why their report is called The Great Opportunity is because they say it's the largest gospel opportunity in the history of America. And again, you can download that and read it yourself. Now, what they have in view when they talk about the next generation is essentially sort of two generations. It's Generation Z, which uh, you can uh, basically age that at, at 11 to 25, and Generation Alpha, I don't know if that's a new word for you or not, but that's essentially birth through elementary and those who will be born uh, through the year 2025. A real simple way of thinking about that is Generation Z in, in our church context is middle school through college age, and uh, Generation Alpha is fifth grade and under. 
depending on when you exactly date that. But essentially, it's, it's those, those two groups. And it's a really big group. In the United States, Generation Z makes up 65 million in the U.S. and almost 2 billion globally. Generation Alpha is fast approaching them at 2.5 million born globally every week. And when they've all been born in a couple of years, in 2025, they will be 2 billion, making them the largest generation on the globe. If you take that really, really big number and you were to zoom in in terms of our state, that makes up about 11 million people in Texas. It's 36% of the population is Generation Z and Generation Alpha. And if you were to look around and say, well, what about like our immediate context of where we are? If you were to zoom in even closer, if you were to just drop a pin in Frisco Square, if I were to like show a map behind me uh, and just do a radius around this location of about 8 to 10 miles, about a 20-minute drive in every direction. And if you just took like Braswell High School over here and you went across 380 to Boyd High School in McKinney, and if you went down to Emerson High School, the new high school that just opened up, and if you went down 121 to the Colony High School and back up 423, you guys with me? That rectangle area, if you picked up all the high schools and the middle schools and the elementary schools in that entire space, it is significant. If you just took the school enrollment And that would be excluding pre-K and under, the youngest of Generation Alpha. And if you excluded 18 to 25-year-olds, which is a huge number, and that's the oldest of Generation Z, it makes up still something like 121,000 teenagers and kids. If you've looked around and said, it seems like the city has a lot of teenagers and kids, you would be right. That's 121,000 uh, people all around us. I grew up in a small town of about 8,500. Some of you did too. And that was a big world to me, 8,500 people. And just all the generations combined, 8,500 when I graduated high school. And, and just that school enrollment alone is 14 times that. My brother uh, works at a church in Odessa. That's the whole city of Odessa compacted in that like rectangle that I just described with just that segment of Generation Z and Generation Alpha. It's, it's pretty big. It's large. If you were to zoom in e- closer into this immediate context, just looking around our church building, Generation Z and Generation Alpha is represented by about 350 people. That's about 200 kids, fifth grade and under. That's about 100 middle and high school students. It's around 50 to 60 college students. Now, I share all those numbers and all that data, not because researchers are saying, look at the numbers, look at the data, and look at the trends, but because Jesus tells us to look at the harvest. In John 4, you, you know this passage, he says to his disciples, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields that are white for harvest. He says it's possible to just look past the people that are right in front of you. And Jesus says, stop and pause and lift up your eyes and look at the crowds with compassion right in front of you. Look at the fields. And so as pastors, what we feel personally 
for our church and what we want you to feel for our church is a, a, a responsibility. Not, not a responsibility to do everything because we know that we can't do everything. We know that God's uh, doing a lot in a lot of different churches. But what is our responsibility to do our part with what we can with our resources in our day to reach and equip the next generation with the gospel? And that's why in Luke 18, that's what we're going to look at together. Because in Luke 18, we see Jesus really reaching the next generation, equipping the next generation, and doing all of that through the gospel. So we're going to look at verses 15 through 17 and see how Jesus reaches the next generation. Verse 18 through 27, how he equips them. And in verses 28 through 30, how he does that through the good news of the gospel. And before we get right into the text... Let me pray one more time and ask for the Holy Spirit's help here. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see what we need to see. And in seeing what we're supposed to see, would you do the supernatural work of giving us bold faith and courage and confidence that you are going to do what we can't do in the next generation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's look how Jesus reaches the next generation in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You notice the disciples rebuke people for bringing outsiders into Jesus. And they, they think that this is commendable. They think that Jesus is uh, pleased by their actions. These kids were non-Jews. That makes them outsiders. They were likely sick. They were likely poor. For sure, they were needy and weak and helpless because that's what children are. And instead of commending them, he actually turns it around in verse 16 and rebukes them. Jesus called them and said, uh, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What he's saying there is that grace is for the needy, and grace is for the broken, and grace is for the weak, and grace is for the helpless. And kids are all of those things. They're needy, and they're broken, and they're weak, and they're helpless, and, and, and they need Jesus. That's what kids need. See, what Jesus is saying in that day is what he says to children in this day and to parents of kids and to uh, a church full of kids is that Generation Alpha needs a lot of different things, but what they need the most is Jesus. In verse 15, it says, now they were bringing even infants to him. Notice that he might touch them. That's what the next generation needs. The next generation needs a touch from Jesus in Matthew's account, it says that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Our, our kids need that. They need the hands of Jesus laid on them and the prayers of Jesus for them. Now, this is really significant because that's how it works in the local church. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is alive and he is ascended and he's poured his spirit out upon us, 
normal, ordinary people who gather together. And when we gather together, Christ indwells this space and this place uniquely. And kids then experience Christ lay his hands on them through us. And he does that through objective and physical ways that he has ordained. And I can't explain it all, but that's, that's how it works. Kids see Jesus in baptism and communion. They hear Christ in the scripture. They engage Christ in the singing of others. They feel healthy, non-sexual, healthy touch from adults in their lives. They enjoy non-digital friendship and fellowship with others. And this is so important to Generation Alpha. This is a generation that has been in front of screens more and earlier than any other generation. We're told that 65% of children ages 8 to 11 either own or have access to a mobile phone at home. They have experienced a global pandemic as kids. Now, we've all experienced the pandemic in a variety of ways. Of ways. We've all suffered in different ways. But they uniquely, as children in the most formative years of their lives. And so social distancing measures pushed to Generation Alpha to rely on digital forums to interact with people as a generation They will lean on digital games and the metaverse as meeting places. So as a church and as like Grace Kids, as a ministry, we want this to be a place for kids and kids from the community to come to Jesus unhindered by digital forums and digital reliances. Now, I said this in the first service, special needs families, we see you and and We are working on what we can do as a church in our day to help you. And we understand that that there's nothing evil about the digital. The digital has helped us and will help us if we ever experience another uh, global pandemic as in the past. But the body of Christ is a special gathering place where Jesus uses us to connect with kids in ways that they don't get any other place. They come into a place like this. They feel a hug from their teacher. They hear the unfolding story of the gospel each week. They laugh with their friends. They see parents serve other kids, not just in the context of their home, but they get to see their mom or dad serving other kids around them, and it's meaningful. And then they take all those lessons home throughout the week. So children need Jesus, and our responsibility is to bring kids to Jesus and to not hinder them from coming to Jesus. But it's also interesting that in this passage, Jesus is teaching that adults need kids to bring us to Jesus. Don't miss that in the passage. In verse 17, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What children model for adults is helplessness and need and desperation and weakness and inability. 
They lift up their hands to us because they are desperate and they need someone on the outside of them to solve their problems. And adults need the visible witness of children in their life more than children need adults in this way. I wonder if you've ever thought about it like that. There's a lot of appeals. Uh, We need adults to serve the kids. Actually, uh, we need children and their witness over and over again in our lives because they demonstrate the reality that we need someone on the outside to rescue us over and over and over again. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it this way, For consider your calling, brothers. That's not your vocational calling. That's your coming into the kingdom calling. Consider how you came into the kingdom. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. That's his polite way of saying none of you were. (laughs) None of you were. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. See, we are weak and we are helpless. And that's what God's grace is for. God's grace is for the broken and for the weak and for the helpless. And children model that so so well for us. It's a picture of of how we should be constantly looking to and responding to God and saying, I need your grace, I need your mercy, I need your help. Because he's glorified by that. And that's how, we're, that's how we come into the kingdom and that's how we live in the kingdom as well. One of the most, just most awesome things I love about Grace Kids is something the Village Church gave to us uh, about a year ago. It's this high chair table, it's in the nursery. I think we have a, a picture of it uh, Yeah, there it is. Y'all see that high chair table? I think it's an eight-seater. Yeah, that's right. See that little high chair table up there? Um, Man, when I walk by that in Grace Kids, I just absolutely stop every single time and I look at that because this is where the kids get the snack. They get the little num-num puff or the Cheerio, you know what I'm talking about? This is where it happens. This is where they get their snack and everybody wants a snack. How many of you want a snack right now? There you go. I don't have a num-num snack for you or whatever. Uh, But this is where they know it happens. The thing about it, though, is that they can't get up there. They they can't do it. And so our wonderful volunteer team, you know, they, when it's snack time, they do it all at once. It's not like one gets up there and the the rest just have to sit and wait. No, they all all put them up there. And they're just like frantic and they're just looking around like, when's it coming? And and, and then the, the, the snacks start coming. They start pouring out all these snacks upon these kids. And they're just like us because they're like looking around like, does he have more than me? And they're, okay, they, oh, there it is, I'm okay. And then they, you know, they, they, they do that thing where they grab it and then they're just kind of like, you know, trying to put it up and, the, you know, it's, I have to imitate that because I just love it. I just think it's the funniest thing in the world. And it's, it's, uh, it's so fun to, to look, look at them up there. I've always said, you know, I kind of want to do like this, um, this dress up and make it like the Lord, the Last Supper or something and put like Jesus in the center. But then like some kids got to be Judas and some parents not going to like that, right? (laughs) I wouldn't like it. Dipping their little num-num in the grape juice or something like that, you know. Uh, So no, that wouldn't work. Uh, But it's just so much fun because it's just a picture of helplessness. And really it's a picture of the fact that that represents for them a table of grace. 
It's a table where they receive. They can't even get to the table, though. It's a, it's a table where it all happens. But they need someone on the outside to actually pick them up and put them at the table of grace. And that is, is what we, we need them in our lives to show us that's how we get to the table of grace. We need Jesus to pick us up and carry us and put us in the table of grace. And there in that table, he feeds us. And that's what it's like to be in the kingdom. And adults need children more than children need adults in this way. And so there's such a blessing when we serve them and we look at them and we serve the next generation because they're, they're teaching us every single Sunday when we do. So that's why Jesus says, don't hinder them. Let them come into the kingdom because he's telling his disciples, you need them more than, more than you know. But he also goes on and he shows us how to equip the next generation. Now, equip is where you, uh, you slow down. And you're not just bringing quick, you're, 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 you're slowing down with precision and you're teaching and you're preparing. And in every passage where you see a picture of the, the next generation, of the, of the little kids scene, you also have this ruler who comes up and asks questions. So in verse 18, you see the rich ruler, which is a familiar story that, again, shows up every time after Jesus has just talked about little kids, there's this young adult that shows up. It's kind of like a teenager. It's almost like he gave this teaching in our context to Generation Alpha, and now he's about to bring a teaching to Generation Z. In verse 18, a ruler asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Verse 21, and he said, all these things, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. In verse 23, we're told that this man is extremely rich. In verse 18, we are told that he is a ruler, he's a landowner, he has power. And in Matthew's gospel, we're told that he's young. So again, Jesus is just taught about how Children model and demonstrate helplessness. 
And, and now somebody who doesn't see themselves as helpless runs up to Jesus and asks this question. Somebody who is rich, somebody who is powerful, and somebody who is young. And those three characteristics really do make up an entire generation in front of us, Generation Z, who are rich and powerful and young. Consider, consider for a moment their wealth. They are more money conscious than their parents that in itself it sounds good. They have better spending habits. But then we're told why they are that way. is because they believe that happiness is the ultimate goal in life. And the way you get there is through financial success. That's the way that you become happy. Consider their power. Last year, Generation Z became the largest generation in American history, and they are digital natives. Uh, they are called screenagers. You ever heard that phrase before? They're screenagers. They know their way around devices that their parents and grandparents didn't even dream would ever exist. 57% uh, use screens for four plus hours a day, 26% for eight plus hours a day. They are the most social and the most empowered generation in U.S. history, which is also why the gospel spreads further and faster with this generation than any other. But with all this wealth and all this knowledge and all of this power, it, it, it hits them as young and immature people. They don't know what to do with all of this. The TikTok generation is the most anxious youth population in human history. 33% report being bullied online. There are high levels of anxiety and depression. An estimated 6 million American teens have some kind of anxiety disorder. They substitute social media for real friendship. They have a constant bombardment of negative self-comparisons. They have a narrowing definition of life success leading to destructive perfectionism and an all-or-nothing thinking. The suicide rate among people ages 10 to 24 has jumped 56% since 2007, according to the CDC. According to one recent study, half of 18-year-olds in the U.S. report anxiety and fear of failure, and about 40% say they often feel sad and depressed. 34% say they often feel lonely and isolated from others. Generation Z are less religious than any previous generation. About one-third of them have no religious affiliation. They make up the category of the knowns, which is essentially like an atheistic, agnostic group. No religion, no religious affiliation. In the U.S., a recent survey showed that only 20% said attending any kind of a local church is important, which means conservatively 57 million kids and teens aren't connected to a church. Which if you put them all in a state in the U.S., it would be double the size of the entire population of Texas. Nevertheless, teens and college students in our day believe themselves to be very good people. Uh, the millennials, I think, coined this phrase, spiritual but not religious. But Generation Z you know, takes it on as a badge of honor. They are spiritual, but they are not religious. Springtide Research uh, has recently reported that nearly half of young people feel like they could fit in any religion. 
while the majority say they don't need to be connected to a specific religion, so long as it involves activism and the pursuit of social justice. This is the way that we are good and spiritual. Brooke Hemphill says, Generation Z is different because they have grown up in a post-Christian, post-modern environment where many of them have not even been exposed to Christianity or to church. There are a lot of churches that are empty in this country. Generation Z is the one generation who is really showing the fruit of that. For the first time in our nation's history, there are many of them who are a spiritual blank slate. And the reason why they are so much a spiritual blank slate is because they believe themselves to be spiritual and to be very good. And so in a lot of ways, their question is the rich young ruler's question. In verse 18, the ruler's question is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you notice the the question he has in his head is, I'm a doer and I get things done and spirituality is found in what I do and I've been doing things and so what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's a very important phrase in this passage because it gets confused in a lot of different ways. Jesus is teaching in this moment that no one is good. And this rich young ruler believes himself to be good. And Jesus is saying nobody is. This will be echoed in Romans 3 where the apostle Paul says all have sinned and fall Short of the glory of God. Everybody. There's nobody that is good. Nobody's kept the commands. And so then he brings the commands right in front of him. He just paraphrases a few of them. Doesn't even share all the ten. He just goes into, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And shockingly, verse 21, the the young man says, all these things I've kept from my youth. The, The young man believes That he has loved God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he believes that he has loved his neighbor as himself. He believes that he has kept the law and that he is a good person. And so when Jesus hears that, verse 22, when Jesus heard this, his understanding that he was a law keeper, that he, he, uh, he was perfect, he was a good person, he said to them, well, one Thing you still lack. Notice actually the precision of the equipping of how he does that. We should uh, think about that in terms of how we approach uh, Generation Z when they, they believe themselves to be good. He doesn't say, you're a liar. You've never kept the law at all. He actually just says, okay, well, let's, let's explore that idea. He says, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. If you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, if you love neighbor as yourself, go do this. Jesus knows that he's not going to do this. But essentially Jesus is saying, get rid of the thing that you think saves you. In that culture and just like in today's culture, Many people believe that their wealth saves them. They don't necessarily think of it like, if I can buy my way to heaven, 
But there's this idea that because I have something, God has uniquely blessed me and I'm a righteous person and I'm a good person. I have stuff that another person doesn't have. And there's a self-righteousness that creeps into the heart. Well, this guy's loaded with self-righteousness because of all of his money. And in that culture, somebody who had money, they were believed to be kind of righteous with God. And Jesus is saying, you're not righteous at all. Get rid of the thing that you think saves you. And that's disappointing to him because in verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He was extremely rich and extremely self-righteous. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? Now, he's not, he's not saying, well, the poor can be saved because there's virtue in poverty. No, he's already said that no one is good. No one is good. That includes the poor. It includes the wealthy. He's saying the self-righteous cannot come into the kingdom. It's absurd. It's as absurd as a camel somehow making its way through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. It's impossible to commend yourself to God by your spirituality and your self-improvement and all your self-righteous virtue. And that's what he's telling this young man. You can't do it and nobody else can. Verse 27 What is impossible with man to do is possible with God. Only possible with God and his grace. Grace comes from the outside towards us. It doesn't come by reaching inside of us and commending ourselves and pushing ourselves into the kingdom. Jesus is not teaching salvation through poverty. He's using money to bring a teaching on how impossible it is to keep the law and save ourselves. No one is good except God alone. And it's impossible to save yourself. It's absurd. It's absurd to think that anyone has kept the law and can save themselves by being a good person. And we are called to come alongside the next generation, to come alongside Generation Z, to come alongside college students and teenagers with the truth, the freeing truth that it is impossible to do things to, or to earn eternal life. You can't achieve it. You can't earn it. You can't do it. You have to receive it through Christ. We've got to come along them, alongside them and say, listen, your wealth can't save you. And my wealth can't save me. You've never kept the law perfectly. The standards, the spiritual standards that you hold over other people, that you judge whether they're spiritual or not, you've never kept. And I haven't either. There are true victims in Generation Z. And for those real victims and true victims, we need to come alongside and support and help them. But it's a generation that believes that they've all been victimized one way or another. And if that's true, you've just equally victimized others even as you are a victim 
yourself. You are just as evil as the evil that has been done to you. And the solution to your problem is not found within you. They are told over and over again that transcendence is found through a journey inward. You journey inward. You, you travel the journey. It, it's, the, it's the pilgrimage of Generation Z. Is this pilgrimage inward into self-discovery. You discover who you are inside. You try to find something unique about you by journeying inward into you. And once you find that thing that makes you unique or at least somewhat more unique than everybody else, then you journey out of the cave, outward, into manifesting that to the world. Just waiting to see uh, how self-expressive you are or how unique or how different you are. And then you've got to go find a tribe or find a group where your self-expression is validated. Now, they're breathing that air. We are breathing that air all day long. And, and there's something that, that at first glance sounds freeing, but it's absolute slavery. You can't save yourself that way. You're not going to find any helpful. It's absurd it's as absurd as a absurd going through the eye as a camel going and may of angel. And you may be listening to this, you may be one of them right now, and you may be one of them, you may be listening, you may be one of them. Live under the crushing. Because that's what it is, brother, of re mental strain. Of recreating yourself to be special and unique instead of believing that you have been created special and unique by God. God has made you special and unique. God has made you special and unique. He is your creator. Jesus is your creator. That's the irony of this story. Everything that the rich young man needs is standing right in front of him. And that's what Jesus says to you. If you're struggling with that, he's your creator. You don't have to recreate yourself. And not only has he created you, he knows how you're hardwired. He's your savior and he can take you and make you into a new creation. And he doesn't want you to be somebody else. He didn't create you to be like the other person. You may want to be like the other person in your life that you admire. But Jesus doesn't want you to be that person. He hasn't created you to be that person. God's created you to be you. Yes. And he wants to shine his glory in and through and recreate you with his image. But that image through you out to other people. Oh, he wants to manifest something. He wants to manifest his glory through your uniqueness. You are special and you are created uniquely and the answer's right in front of you in a relationship with Christ and you can't earn it. That's not how grace is earned. That's not how grace is, is, is given. It's not earned. You can't work towards it. You can only receive it as a gift and that's what he does for all who need it. He, he offers it freely. That's, that's the only way you get it. You get it freely. 
You cannot earn it. And he offers it today. And then he goes on in verses 28 through 30 to show us how, how we do all this through the gospel. So Jesus has just talked about how it's impossible to come into the kingdom outside, unless God does something outside of us to, to move towards us with grace. It's impossible. We can't save ourselves. And then Peter, in verse 28, he's the spokesman of the group. And he asks a question that they're all wondering. Actually, it's not a question. It's a statement. But it's a, a statement kind of indicating he's a little shaky on this. And in verse 28, Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Well, what's happening here? Well, well Peter is kind of representing what can be described as shaky faith. He has genuine faith in Jesus, but it is shaky at times. He really represents all of us who have genuine faith in Christ. But there's moments where it's, it's shaken and it, or it seems so small, and yet it's still there. It's still real. Remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, well, some people say this, some people say this. And he says, well, who do you say? Who do you say? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus' answer to him is, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God has revealed that to you, and you are in a blessed place and, uh, and, and so his faith is genuine and real. But in this moment, he's expressing doubt and he needs reassurance like many of us need. He, he's, he's, he's a little worried. He could be worried about that statement, treasure in heaven. You know, go and sell all that you have and you'll have treasure in heaven. He may be just worried about that part. Like, I, I know I'm saved, but uh, am I going to get treasures in heaven as well? We've given up, you know, we've left our homes. And uh, he may be worried about that, like rewards in heaven. Uh, he also may be experiencing a, a lack of assurance that he saved it all. Verse 26 says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? I mean, it could be Peter himself worried or maybe some of the other disciples saying, this is, you know, have we done enough? Have we, uh, is there something else we should be doing beyond just following you, beyond just trusting in you? And Jesus is assuring Peter. And he wants to assure you today, if you trust in your righteousness, Jesus is going to push you to restless doubt. If you're trusting in your righteousness, it's, it, it, it's sand underneath your feet. It is restless doubt if you're trusting in your goodness and in your spirituality and in your righteousness. But to those who trust in Jesus... Jesus is pushing them to peace and confidence. And that's what he tells uh, Peter in this moment. He says, truly, I say to you, you're, you're, you follow me and you know me and you've been following me. And nobody who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children is not going to receive many more. 
Matthew's gospel says, a hundredfold as much in this life and in the life to come. You are showered with mercy and showered with grace, and it's never going to go away. So listen, if you're in Christ, rest assured believer, if you trust in Jesus, even if your faith is shaky like Peter's, I mean, you could be going in a season going, my faith is very shaky, but it's real. It's there. You're in the kingdom. And you have eternal life. And it's impossible to lose that eternal life. It's impossible to trust in Jesus apart from God's love breaking through to your heart. And that has happened. And you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you need to celebrate that. You need to rest in that. You need to lean back into that truth to know that you're safe forever. You're loved forever. You're in the kingdom. Uh, All of your sins are pardoned. All of your sins are forgiven. All of God's love and mercy is moving towards you and will never leave you. It's never going away. And now from this wonderful place where the air is clear and you are forgiven of all your sins from this place of forgiveness, not trying to earn forgiveness, but from a place of forgiveness, on top of all that, you're promised a hundred times investment on the smallest sacrifice to the next generation to help people know Jesus. If you do anything to help another person on this planet know Jesus, Jesus says, even a cup of cold water because you're a disciple, you will not lose your reward. Jesus is going to shock you and shock me on how you cannot outgive God. And it's just an amazing uh, promise for all of us. So let me just close, uh, close up this message by just a word to parents. Uh, you, could be, have, you could have listened to this entire message as a parent, and it's coming to you in a moment, in a season where, where you already feel overloaded and you feel overwhelmed. And so here's what we want to say to you. We know to reach and equip the next generation means primarily to reach and equip you with the gospel. We're not trying to go around you to your kid or you to your teenagers or to somehow get you moving because you're already so busy and so slammed and so sort of exhausted. What we want to do is come to you with the good news of the gospel of forgiveness and pardon and new life and the love of God for you in the midst of the overwhelm. Michelle and I looked at each other this week and I think we've used the word overloaded more times than we've like ever used it in our life. I don't know if any of you feel that way, especially this week. There are parents who feel exhausted. They feel overloaded. There are parents in the room who feel today like you are failing as a parent. Or maybe even that you are a failure as a parent based on maybe the behavior of your kids or something that you've done or something you've said or some fight that you just got into. Maybe it was on the way to church and who knows. Uh, Maybe maybe you're battling with a sense of failure because of a wandering child in your life right now and you just, you're so burdened for them and you you, want to fix that. You want to fix them and you you feel helpless. Well, let me just say uh, to, to, to that parent in particular, if you're in the room, listen, God cares more. He cares more for your teen. He cares more for your young adult 
than you do. I know that sounds shocking to, to even think about because you, you stay up late thinking about what you've done wrong or what you could do or what your, your kid could be experiencing or not. And, and it, it, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking to you. But l- listen, that, that care, that love for your child didn't come from you. You know where that came from? That comes from Christ. That, that, that you want your kid to walk with Jesus is a manifestation of the Spirit of God at work in your, in your life. And if you zoom that out, that is God's love for that child. He loves that child, that teen, that young adult more than you love that child. And you need to lean into that and rest in that and rest in his love in these days. And our goal throughout this year is to reach you and equip you with that wonderful good news of God's love for you as a parent. He loves you. He loves you in your weakness. He loves you in your failure. He loves you in all the spiritual to-do lists that you didn't check off, that you can't ever seem to finish. He loves you when you totally missed your quiet time or you, haven't, you can't remember the last time you had a, a quiet time. He loves you. Uh, he loves you in the midst of a fight with your kid. Do you know that? He loves you. Now, he doesn't love your sin. He doesn't love it when you, you yelled at him or whatever uh, or when you expressed anger. But he is committed to you and he loves you. And we need to rest in his amazing grace and his amazing love. And so throughout the year, what we're trying to do is not overload parents with a bunch of things to do. There are some things to do, but we don't want to overload you. Uh, so you're going to hear some things about Things that we're doing for kids, like a new curriculum in Grace Kids. We've shared that last week. New resources for you to use at home. New mission trip uh, options for high schoolers and other kinds of things like that. So we're doing things for Generation Z and Generation Alpha. But we also want to provide you with things that are designed to help you and to encourage you and not to heap burdens upon you. So, for instance, we're, we want to do parent labs that talk about how to rest in Christ and to love your kids through schooling challenges and sibling and home issues and digital boundaries and sex and gender and a bunch of other kinds of parenting questions. But we're not going to be validated by your attendance, and we just want to let you know about that. We're not, we're not looking for that. We're, we're seeking to equip you. We want you to build friendships with other parents who are in the same season of life. But not as a burden to you, but as an encouragement to you. We, we, we are working on a website that is, that's going to be kind of a hub of gospel take-and-go resources for every stage and season of parenting. Again, this isn't a spiritual to-do list. Think of it more like a refreshment station in a marathon run. I've never run a marathon. I'd like to run a marathon. But I hear that there's these like refreshment moments as you're running. Uh, and, and so, I don't know if that's true or not, but in, in parenting, you need refreshment. It's a marathon run, and that's what we want to create throughout this year. We're, we're exploring ongoing parent support groups for that, to equip and encourage you to believe the gospel for yourself as you're passing it on to your children. And that's what we need. And we're going to sing... Um, we're going to sing a song about Jesus being strong and kind for us. And we're going to sing uh, a song about how we can always run to Jesus. 
And, and this is just a great moment. Like school starting up, all this stuff. We're doing a new ministry theme, new ministry focus. But what we need the most is to run to Jesus. Before we're tr- telling our kids, our teens, our young adult friends, you need to run to Jesus. We need to run to Jesus. So if you'll stand with me, let's pray together along those lines. Lord, our confession this morning is that we can't save ourselves. We can't do, uh, we can't do anything to commend ourselves to you. We confess today that we have broken your law. And uh, nobody is righteous. No one's good. There's nobody in the room that is good except God alone. And we thank you that you are in the room. We thank you that your grace is free and you freely pour it out upon the weak and the helpless and the needy. And those who lift up their hands like kids and say, I don't have any righteousness of my own. I don't have any spirituality That can get me to heaven. I don't have any way to get to eternal life. Eternal life has to be given to me. And we thank you, Lord, for those who know you, that we're in the kingdom. We've been transferred from darkness to light, from death to life. And we thank you that that life is eternal. It never goes away. That life is infused with your love and your power. And it's through that life that we can head into a very busy season and into a very busy year knowing that you're for us and you're not against us. We thank you that we can transfer the gospel to the next generation from a place of forgiveness, not from a place of trying to earn your forgiveness. We thank you that we are known by you. We thank you that we are loved by you. Even in our weakest moments, we confess we've had many weak moments lately. But you have never left us. You've never failed us. And so as we begin this new year, this new school year, we run to you. And we thank you for your mercy in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.